Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Dr Raj Prasod and I'm a consultant psychiatrist based at the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospitals in South London. Today we're talking to Dr Jim Van Oss. He's a professor of psychiatry at Maastricht University and also a visiting professor of psychiatry at the Institute of Psychiatry in London. He and some co-authors have published a fascinating paper in the September issue of the British Journal of Psychiatry entitled Genetic Risk of Depression and Stress-Induced Negative Affect in Daily Life. Jim, let's start off in talking about the paper, the background of the paper. You seem to be interested in this notion of the kind of personality predisposition that might lead on to depression. Could you say a bit about that? Yes, uh, thanks Raj for asking that. We've been very interested in this question for a long time. And basically, there's been previous research showing that certain personality types have a higher risk of developing depressive disorder. And this personality type is usually characterized as a person who would more than average have a tendency to worry about little things. And uh, this has also been referred to as the personality trait neuroticism. Now, one of the problems with this personality trait risk factor for depression thing is that it is very difficult to ask individuals how they react to little things in terms of worries or negative emotions in the flow of daily life. Yet this is the the, the, the very essence we think of this personality trait that actually puts people at risk. So we have tried to come uh, up with a method that could actually assess this stress reactivity uh, phenotype, if you like, in the flow of daily life. And what we did then was to try to uh, have individuals measure themselves in the flow of daily life using a technique called the experience sampling method. And the experience sampling method basically is about uh, giving individuals a timing device like a watch or a PDA. And this timing device will actually go off at random moments uh, 10 times a day, six days a week in, in people's life. And what we ask them to do then is uh, each time the, the beep goes off, we ask them to very briefly enter some data about uh, how they feel in terms of positive emotions and negative emotions, and very briefly indicate if since the last beep they've been the subject of some minor stressor, for example, uh, spilling coffee or, or having an unpleasant conversation with somebody or uh, missing a traffic light or things like that. And um, we then get a picture of individuals in the flow of daily life in terms of their mood reactions to these little stresses in the flow of daily life. And this, what we, this is what we wanted to capture in relation to depressed illness. So actually to try to uh, do this in a way that we could also assess genetic effects because previous research has shown that actually this personality type that puts individuals at risk of depression is on the influence of genes. So in order to further investigate this, then we asked, to, we asked people to, uh, to do this experience sampling method measurement in daily life that were part of a twin pair. Uh, so twin pairs are individuals, are, are siblings, 
And as you know, some of these twin pairs share 100% of their genes. These would be identical twins or monozygotic twins, whereas other twins uh, share only 50% of their genes, like normal brothers and sisters, and these are the dizygotic twins. So we asked these twin pairs to actually both do the experience sampling method, measure stress reactivity in the flow of daily life, and we also measured their level of uh, depression. And um, our hypothesis basically was that uh, we expected to see that if one twin using the experience sampling method had high levels of stress reactivity, uh, reacting with lots of negative emotions to small stresses in the flow of daily life, if one twin had this type of reactivity, then we expected the other twin to have higher levels of depression. And furthermore, we expected that the twins that shared 100% of their genes would have more similarity in terms of stress reactivity in one twin and depression in the other twin than the dizygotic twins who share only 50% of their genes. Uh, so why did we have these hypotheses? Well, basically we had these hypotheses because if you can show this, that monozygotic twins who share 100% of their genes also share stress reactivity and depression more so than dizygotic twins, you will basically have answered your question in the terms of why do genes, what is the mechanisms whereby genes influence the risk of depression? Because this mechanism, this genetic mechanism, may be translated to simply stress reactivity in the flow of daily life. So this is why we thought this question was so important. And in fact, what we found was that uh, uh, according, uh, in line with our initial hypothesis was that uh, if one twin had high levels of stress reactivity, the other twin had high levels of depression. And uh, furthermore, this relationship was much stronger in the monozygotic twins than in the dizygotic twins. So basically, what we concluded was that the mechanism whereby genes influence the risk for depression maybe by influencing the way people react to small stresses in the flow of daily life. Well, the paper is, is fascinating and uh, the results are fascinating, but what's particularly intriguing about it is this technique you used of the experience sampling method. I just want to go back and, and talk a little bit about that. Um, Traditionally, surely, psychologists and psychiatrists have tried to capture this concept of neuroticism by questionnaires, perhaps the most famous of which is the EPQ, the ISENC Personality Questionnaire. Um, what was your problem with that method? Why is it you wanted to go for this much more complex and, in a way, dynamic method compared to uh, just very simply using a personality questionnaire like like that, given that these personality questionnaires are, 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 are perhaps one of the most widespreadly used technique in psychology and psychiatry. Yeah. So um, I think that one of the reasons we started using this experience sampling methodology was that uh, it was discovered that if you ask individuals to report about something that really takes place from moment to moment in the flow of daily life, they find it very difficult to give a mean answer in terms of replying to a cross-sectional questionnaire. 
in the, so so it is basically about can individuals consider themselves from a distance in terms of how they function uh, from moment to moment dynamically in the flow of daily life. And this is something that most people find very difficult to report. So if you compare uh, people's reports on a cross-sectional questionnaire with these experience sampling uh, methodologies, then you actually find that there's not that much correspondence between the cross-sectional questionnaire and the dynamically measured reactivity from moment to moment. Uh, and of course, this is a problem because now we detect that, that, that lots of measures that we take for granted, for example, optimism or even depression or phobia or psychosis, we more and more discover that these are actually wildly fluctuating within the individuals over the course of time and not just from month to month, but from hour to hour, from minute to minute, within days and from day to day. And this is particularly important because we have the hypothesis, of course, that all these measures, these phenotypes, these personality traits are influenced by genes. But if you can't assess them properly, particularly the phenotypes that, 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 uh, that try to measure reactivity, then it's going to be very difficult to find any effect of the gene because you can't measure your phenotype. So this is why we've resorted to this measure of experience sampling, although, of course, it's, it's expensive and uh, it's labor-intensive for, uh, for the subjects as well. You mount a very um, cogent argument, and, of course, it has radical implications for psychiatric research in general. In other words, you seem to be saying that capturing the dynamic nature of mental life has been a major methodological flaw, in a way, with, with psychiatric and psychological research. Um, it's still the case, though, that this approach that you've used is, is relatively rarely used, isn't it, in, in uh, psychiatric and psychological research? I mean, I, I, when I look through the number of references you, you quoted to quote previous papers um, mentioning this method, it's a very small number, isn't it? It's just a handful. Yeah, it's a very small number. It's just a handful. But um, as you've been going through the literature, you've also noted probably that the number of these publications is increasing and um, we, we do a yearly course on this methodology, and we have found that actually the number of people asking uh, uh, if they can come here and learn about this methodology has been increasing exponentially. And this is not just about researchers. There's also a lot of interest from, for example, psychotherapists who want to have ways to assess the, the effects of these psychotherapies on people's daily lives. And the same goes, for example, for people, for, for pharmaceutical companies who want to assess the effects of their psychotropic medications in terms of what happens in daily life. So um, uh, I think there's now at least six or seven groups worldwide that are using this methodology in psychiatry. In psychology, there are even more. And I think it's spreading. And I think that says something about the, the validity about the measure uh, in terms of uh, uh, clinical relevance as well. It's a methodology that does demand a lot of your subjects, doesn't it? I mean, they, they got to stop at these random moments several times during the day and fill out a whole bunch of forms. Yes. Um, yes. How, how confident are you that they really are filling out these forms accurately? I mean, if I, if I was in the, in the middle of a ward round and, and you're wristwatch you gave me bleep to go off, I may postpone filling out the form to a later, a later moment. 
So actually, what, what, what we did, well, we asked people to fill in actually the time they fill it in. And if they're too late, we don't, we, we, we don't take into consideration that particular observation. But your question is very important uh, in terms of methodological limitations. So what we did in the, in the sample we used for the British Journal paper is actually that we used an electronic device that actually can measure when people fill in the answer. Uh, we did this by using a very clever electronic mechanism that actually gives you a time within uh, uh, a very small device people had to use to fill in the questionnaire, uh, assessing the time. And then you can compare the actual time according to this electronic spying device with the time that people actually said they had filled in the report. And fortunately, in this sample, there was about a 90% uh, reliability in terms of times plus or five minutes uh, of the device and the actually time people indicated they had filled in the questionnaire. So this was very encouraging for us, but it is something that you need to keep in mind constantly with this method, and that's, that's a limitation. You have to have very experienced research assistants calling the people, asking every day if there were problems, if they need help, if the, the watches or the PDA are still functioning, etc. So that means it is very difficult to use it on a large scale. Can't use it in very large cohort studies, for example. It always has to be in relatively small and selected samples. So this paper actually was about, uh, about more than 500 twins. So you can imagine how long it took us actually to collect this, this, this sample. And fortunately, we, we had the pleasure of working with a Belgian twin sample who were actually very motivated to participate in this research. Fascinating, though, um, your finding is, I want to just take issue with your interpretation of what the, what the data meant in terms of your conclusion. Your argument seems to be that you believe what your data is showing is that there is a key factor in, in low mood, which is the way one reacts to events. And if you have a, a particular way of reacting, a particular, particularly emotional or a particularly neurotic way of reacting, then this is key to our understanding of why some people get depressed and others don't. Surely there's another possible interpretation, which is that people who are neurotic tend to make life choices. And as a result of those life choices, which are often, let's say, bad decisions, they end up experiencing more negative life events. So it's, it's not so much it's their reaction to negative life events that's the key point. They actually end up having a more negative life as a result of some decisions. And I would argue your methodology doesn't allow us to pick the difference between those two different hypotheses. Yeah. So this, this, is, this is a very key issue, of course. It's the issue of what drives what. And fortunately, actually, you can test this uh, correlation hypothesis uh, using experience sampling data. Because, for example, it is very easy to see whether there's a difference uh, between individuals with high stress reactivity and low stress reactivity. Uh, if your hypothesis were true, then you'd probably expect individuals with high stress reactivity to have more negative, to have more events and to report more life events. However, this is not the case. It is not the case that they uh, report more events or even that when, uh, when, when they're not actually depressed but have been depressed in the past, that they have higher levels of negative effect. It is 
entirely the relationship between the two, between the stressor and the emotion that is different between these individuals. And that makes up the risk for uh, depression. So in that, in that case, I think the, so, so these data are actually, I think, quite suitable to try to tease out the different mechanisms that might be at the base of these findings of neuroticism being linked to depression. Of course, you can never entirely exclude it because that would be very difficult, but at least we can show that it is unlikely using these data. But you're talking about events as if they're entirely objective events out there in the physical universe. Let me give you a classic example. A, a neurotic researcher in your department walks past you in the corridor, says hello, and you don't reply, you don't say hello back. This becomes a negative life event to a neurotic person. They begin to worry about what did it mean that Professor Do- Dr. Van Oss did not, did not acknowledge me, whereas a non-neurotic person doesn't even register this as an event. So events are not objective things out there. They're part of our perception. Isn't that an issue exactly but that's true but if if so but but if that's were the sole mechanism driving our findings you'd find that the neurotic person would have more events not just uh, more stress reactivity but also more events because he would make more interpretations like that in daily life compared to a non-neurotic person so that's the first point but the second point and this is of course very interesting because it's nearly bordering on the philosophical And that is, what is stress? Is stress the actual uh, subjective interpretation of the event? And I think most people these days would agree that it is not just an actual stressor, it is the interaction between the person, the stressor, and the way the person interprets the stressor. So in a way I'm saying that it doesn't matter very much uh, if a person makes a negative interpretation because of some uh, some some background factor because always he will react with, with, with more negative emotions to this perceived stressor so it becomes very difficult of course in that in, in, in that direction because then you're going to introduce more variables into the into the equation as you like but still the basic finding that there is a, a relationship between a stressor and the way in which it generates negative responses is still at the heart of the differences between neurotic and non-neurotic persons. But what I was also trying to drive at um, is, is an alternative account which looks at the fact that you're still relying on people's reporting of events, I think, in your methodology. And I think that it is possible that many people could have an experience like I just described where someone um, gets gets concerned that, they, that you haven't smiled at them. And that actually may not be consciously available to them. They may, may just be, a, be aware of the low mood, but they may not be consciously aware of, of what was the event that precipitated it. And, and many psychotherapists would have this experience that the patient says, I'm feeling upset about something. And it's only when you discuss it in great detail, sometimes over several hours of therapy, that actually conscious awareness comes to the patient of what it was they were obsessing about. So exactly. So this is this is why it was very important to use a twin design, because this is the issue that is always very difficult in depression research. That's the contamination of any measure you use in terms of life event or stressful events otherwise measured, and the mental state of the person. And using this twin methodology, actually, what you do is you stress, you assess stress reactivity in somebody who's free of any mood symptoms. 
So therefore, you're not going to have this problem that he's going to assess negatively events because of his mood. And then you try to assess the association between distress reactivity and mood or neuroticism or any other uh, trait you're interested in in another person. So there's no cross-contamination within the person. And that's the other reason why we use this twin methodology, so that you can see whether to what degree actually it is the mood within the person that affects the reporting of events or negative effects and their relationship, or whether you can also show it in a cross-twin, cross-trait relationship. And I think that's, as far as we show, we, we, we are now, that's, that's actually the best way to try to, circum, to circumvent some of the problems you describe. Well, it's fascinating research, um, and it's a, a really intriguing paper. Um, what's the next step in terms of your research? What do you think are the implications of this paper, and what, what's in the pipeline from your group um, following on from these findings? Well, in, in, in the pipeline is, is several things. The first, we're interested in uh, that we have noticed that some individuals, even if they are depressed, that some individuals are still clearly capable to respond with positive effects to positive events. And uh, this, this capacity to respond with positive effect to positive events has also been termed uh, reward in the literature. And we think this function of reward is also key to understanding differences between people in terms of risk for depression. So in a follow-up paper, we have shown that actually the relationship between uh, stress reactivity and depression can be buffered to a large extent by people's capacity to generate positive effect also in the flow of daily life. Those who are still able to generate some degree of positive effect have less influence, have, have less influence of, of stressors on their negative emotions and therefore they reduce their risk for depression. And what is interesting is that even if they have a co-twin with a serious depression, therefore they are at high genetic risk, even then they are able to neutralize, as it were, their genetic risk for depression if they are able to generate positive effects. Now, the reason I'm saying this is that, as you know, you are aware probably that, that there's a lot of interest in, in, in psychotherapies such as mindfulness-based psychotherapy, acceptance and commitment therapies that tend to... Uh, focus not just on stress sensitivity and depression, but also actually on, on ways of trying to break through this vicious circle of, of negative emotions uh, and negative expectations for people to also t to try to rediscover the natural rewards in their, in their environment, in the flow of daily life. And therefore, we think that the, actually this, this, this relationship between rewards Stress sensitivity and genes is the next step actually to study and to see uh, to what degree it can be influenced by these psychotherapies, these newer psychotherapies that may be helpful for some people with repeated episodes of depression. Professor Jim Vanos, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Raj.